Well, this afternoon, we'll be back in Philippians chapter 3. So if you have your Bible here, please turn to Philippians chapter 3. I kind of chuckled this morning and again this afternoon as I've bumped into several people from Lacrete who are visiting here and who heard me preach out of Philippians 3 last July, and I'm still in it. So keep on coming, or we'll keep on traveling over to, uh, to visit, and we should be able to get through the letter together. I'm thankful for the faithful ministry of Mike Hovland and all who serve in that sister church of ours that is so dear to us. Well, our text will be verses 17 through to the end of 21. However, you should know that chapter 4 and verse 1 are part of that same paragraph. And so when I do get to reading through the word, uh, I will include that that first verse there, and you can listen to how it connects to all that Paul indicates, instructs in those verses in chapter three. We've seen as we've traveled through this chapter, this is Paul's testimony that he's writing to the Philippians and what a wonderful, vibrant testimony it is. We've seen in verse seven, Paul described his conversion, his regeneration. We've seen in verse 9, then he, des- he describes his justification, not having a righteousness of my own derived from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ. We've seen him describe his sanctification as well, that he is pursuing being conformed into the image of Christ. And then we've also seen him anticipate his glorification. And that we see in a a few places, no doubt, as he is keeping his eyes on the mark, fixed on the finish line, pressing on toward the goal of the for the of the call for the call of the upward, pressing on toward the goal for the prize, I should say rather. of God, of the upward call in Christ Jesus. And then we've also seen him give warnings. And he is fully aware of those who are teaching falsely in Philippi. This no doubt has been um, reported to him. And three times we've seen early in chapter three, him say, beware, beware of those who promote a religion of works those who are focused, fixated on their own self-righteousness. And there is a thread that runs through chapter three, even throughout all of scripture. I don't know that I've pointed this out as we've gone through chapter three, but that thread is this truth, that there really are only two types of people in this world, two types of people that we will see in this world. We see in verse one that there are those who are called to rejoice in the Lord. And certainly there are those that do rejoice in the Lord, but at the same time, there are those who don't, two types of people. We see Paul describe those who are of the mutilation, physically circumcised, but hearts wholly unregenerate. And at the same time, he describes those who are of the circumcision. He's referring there to 
that circumcision of the heart that occurs at regeneration. When the believer is given a new heart, two types of people. We've seen him describe those who place their confidence in the flesh, even as he had originally, and he describes that. But we also know that there are those who worship in the spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus, placing no confidence in the flesh. There are those who trust in their own pedigree, trust in their own personal achievements. And there are also those who trust only in the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus as Lord, as does Paul declare. There are those who, like Paul, appraise the world as, and do appraise the world as loss, while appraising Christ as gain. And there are those who pursue gain in this world only to ultimately suffer loss. There are those whose life ledger has only Christ on the prophet, in the prophet column. But there are also those whose ledger displays a valuing of that which is only perishing. There are those whose righteousness is in faith, through faith in Christ, and those whose righteousness is derived from following the law only. There are those who are pressing on toward the, the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. And there are those who have no interest whatsoever in that finish line. They have and be, continue to become more obstinate while manufacturing their own idea of what awaits them in their death. And so the fact is that there are only two types of people that exist in our world, a biblical theme. Jesus, speaking very succinctly in Matthew twelve thirty, said this. He said, he who is not with me is against me. He who is not with me is against me. And there are many single verses and even passages that describe two types of people. John 3.16 says this, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. And then if we just fast forward to verse 36, John continues to write, He who believes in the Son has eternal life, but he who does not obey the Son will not see life, but the wrath of God abides on him. And so we see those who will receive God's love through his grace, while there are others who will suffer the wrath of God. There are those who will believe, and there are those who will not obey the Son, showing their unbelief. There are those who have eternal life, and there are those who will not see life, as John writes Jesus' words. In Romans 5.19, Paul writes this. He says, For as through the one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners, even so through the obedience of the one, the many will be made righteous. And so we see there's disobedience. There's also obedience. There's remaining in sin or being made righteous. In Colossians 1, in verse 13, Paul writes, 
For he rescued us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. And so we really see even all people in this world operating in one of two domains, one of two realms. They're either in the domain of darkness or in the kingdom of his beloved son. Ephesians 2 and verses one through four display this contrast of two people as well. There are those who are dead in trespasses and sin, while there are at the same time those who are made alive together with Christ. In Romans 6 and 18 and 19, there are those who are described as slaves to sin, or there are those who are described as slaves to righteousness. The same passage describes those who remain in bondage while also describing those who have been freed from sin. <clears throat> and then in 1 Corinthians 1 and 18, there are those who are perishing, but there are also those who are being saved. There are those who see the cross as foolishness or those who see the cross as the power of God. <clears throat> so two types of people. And we could go on and on. There's the mission field and there's the missionary. There's the wise, there's the fool. There are those walking in darkness and those walking in the light. Those walking in their flesh and those walking in the spirit. Lost, saved. You get the point. We could spend hours upon hours just simply looking at all of those very specific contrasts of these two types of people in scripture. But there is a further distinction that one can draw. And we see it even in our passage here today. It's one that we could easily infer from our text again. There are those who profess and those who confess. And I've defined these two terms before, those those who profess to have faith in God, to put their trust in God, there, there could be evidence in their lives, certainly that they are doing that, but at the same time, there could be evidence also in their lives that would lead one to further question that. And so we would refer to those people as being those who profess, whereas those who confess are in alignment with the word of God. They're in agreement with the way God sees them, themselves. And so we see here, no doubt, that there are those that, are described, that, that we could identify as ones who have made a profession, while at the same time, Paul urges those who are confessing faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And Paul weeps for those, those who are professing. He even tells us as much. And we see in verse 18 of chapter 3, a further distinction, there are those who set, whose minds are set on earthly things, and this even being within the church as he is warning the church. And in verse 20, there are those who are heavenly citizens. And so again, two types of people. And so there's no wonder why Paul senses the need then to urge the Philippians on. To, to be able to recognize this distinction while also being ready to examine themselves accordingly. 
And so let's, let's read our text here, beginning in verse 17. <clears throat> Brethren, join in following my example and observe those who walk according to the pattern you have in us. For many walk, of whom I often told you and now tell you, even weeping, that they are enemies of the cross of Christ, whose end is destruction, whose God is their appetite, and whose glory is in their shame, who set their minds on earthly things. For our citizenship is in heaven, from which also we eagerly wait for a savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform the body of our humble state into conformity with the body of his glory by the exertion of the power that he has even to subject all things to himself. Therefore, my beloved brethren, whom I long to see my joy and crown in this way, stand firm in the Lord, my beloved. This is God's word. And in these verses, these few verses, we see Paul giving us three exhortations which provide the necessary pattern for those who hold a heavenly citizenship. Three exhortations that provide for the necessary pattern for those holding heavenly citizenship. And he does this so that each one of us, so that you and I can run the race of the Christian life successfully unto the glory of God. And so we'll look at these three exhortations. First, we'll take a look at the exhortation to be imitators found in verse 17. And then again in verse 17, but continuing on through 19, we'll take a look at his exhortation to inspect carefully, to be careful inspectors. And then thirdly, finally, we'll take a look at his exhortation in verses 20 and 21 that you would know your identity. And so imitation, inspection, identification is our outline. So let's take a look at Paul's first exhortation here to be imitators in verse 17. Take a look at the front part of that verse. Brethren, join in following my example. Again, Paul is here calling for those who he holds so near and dear to his heart He's calling them to full intention. He wants to draw their attention to something that is of vital importance, these exhortations. And in fact, Paul here is writing in the imperative. Literally, he uses a Greek term that just simply says be. It's the command to be. It's like the U.S. Army slogan, be all that you can be. Well, what does it mean to be? It means to come into or to possess a certain state of being, to really provide evidence or to prove to be something. And he here is speaking in the middle voice. And so we need to understand that he is emphasizing the Philippians' active participation in carrying out the very action, this very command that he is giving them. But this isn't Paul's only use of this imperative. We see this in other places as well. 1 Corinthians 4 and 16, for instance, where he writes, therefore, I exhort you, be imitators 
of Christ, or of, of me, rather. It's always used to inform moral behavior or otherwise to warn against sinful behavior. That's why, that's how this, this imperative is, is used. We see Paul use it as a warning as well in 1 Corinthians 7 and 23, where he writes, you were bought with a price. Do not become slaves of men. Literally, be not slaves of men. But what exactly is Paul commanding the Philippians to be? Well, he uses the Greek term sumimetai, which he only uses in this one place. And, and it, it's even thought that this might be Paul's invention. You see, it's a compound word that means fellow imitators, fellow imitators. And the root word here is a term mamemai, which means imitate, to imitate, to emulate, to follow. And it's derived from an even smaller word that just is mimos, which you hear mimic, right? Mimic, to imitate is to mimic someone else, to try to do exactly as they are doing. And so I think the King James Version renders this very closely when it says, be imitators of me together, or be together imitators of me. Be fellow imitators of mine, Paul is saying. And this is no doubt a similar instruction that he has given in other places. We see this in 2 Thessalonians 3 and verse 7, where he is calling on the Thessalonians to mimic disciplined behavior that they have seen. For you yourselves know how you ought to follow our example because we did not act in an undisciplined manner among you. Again, in verse 9 of Second Thessalonians 3, not because we do not have the right, and he's speaking specifically of the right to be supplied for while in ministry, but in order to offer ourselves as a model for you so that you would follow our example. And so we see a willingness that Paul is calling on for them to mimic that willingness to labor faithfully, even if that means providing for one's own needs, as Paul did in Thessalonica, not depending upon them. The writer of Hebrews uses this same term as well to imitate And in this case, he, in the context of leadership for leaders, towards leaders, remember those who led you, who spoke the word of God to you, and considering the result of their conduct, imitate their faith. So follow after the pattern that you see in them. But Paul didn't see himself as the prototype. We know this, right? He had a, the greatest model to imitate, really, he, he writes about this great, the greatest model that he imitates in chapter two of, of Philippians, the letter to the Philippians, where he writes in verse five, have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus. <clears throat> so he's calling them to imitate Christ Jesus, the humility that is seen <clears throat> in the person and work of our Lord Jesus Christ. He goes on to write in verse eight, he humbled himself 
by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Now, we can't, we can't possibly fathom the humility demonstrated in the person of Christ going from the position that he had in glory to humbling himself, adding the likeness of sinful flesh to himself. There's a humility there that we truly cannot fathom, and yet, nonetheless, we are called to humble ourselves even as was seen in Christ Jesus. And so Paul had the greatest model. He expresses this very clearly in 1 Corinthians 11 and verse 1, where he writes, be imitators of me, just as I also am of Christ. Right? And so there is the one who Paul imitates. And so when we take a look at the life of Paul and desire to imitate Paul's life, really we are desiring to imitate the one who Paul himself was seeking to imitate. But what, what, were, what were they to imitate together? What were the Philippians to imitate together here in a unified sense? Well, they were to be straining head to the finish line, according to verse 13, imitate that that effort, they're to imitate pressing on toward the goal in 14, having their eyes fixed on that finish line. They're to imitate sharing the same way of thinking. In verse 15, they're to imitate being aligned to the same standard. And so really, all that precedes this command, this imperative can be applied here, even as Paul's demonstrating this in his very own life. Brethren, join in following my example, he writes. This is a somewhat similar command, I would say, to what we then read in chapter 4 and verse 9, where Paul writes, the things you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things. And the God of peace will be with you. Again, calling them to imitate those very things that they had witnessed, that they had realized in his own personal ministry. Imitating Paul as he himself imitated Christ. This is the first aspect of the pattern of heavenly citizens. The question could be asked, are you then imitating Paul? Are you aware of his ministry? Do you know the things that he went through? Do you, do you take time to meditate upon how he responded to each and every one of those, those circumstances that he found himself in? We need to be imitating Paul. His was a humble example. Even amidst suffering, we see him continually setting his focus on others and not himself, not looking to have any sort of pity party for himself, but rather always seeking to serve, really, and to pursue those who are lost. That's his ministry example. Is that you? Do you recognize that in Paul? And are you seeking earnestly to apply that to your lives? This is the exhortation to imitate. Secondly, let's then note the exhortation regarding inspection. In verses 
17 through 19. Let me read verse 17 again here. Brethren, join in following my example and observe those who walk according to the pattern you have in us. This is a second imperative that Paul is issuing here. It's found there in the word observe, which means to notice by paying careful attention, really becoming a student, to behold, to contemplate that which you are witnessing, to carefully consider the lives of not only Paul, but others. Now, he includes others in this. The patterns, the pattern, rather, you have in us, plural, right? And so, Paul, we see, is, is wanting them really to recognize in him himself and others that there is a model worthy of following. And this, this imperative he has used in another place in this letter as well, chapter 2 and verse 4, he uses this to exhort Christian humility, where he writes, do not merely look out for or consider your own personal interests, but also consider the interests of others but also for the interests of others. And so we have to love Paul's economy of words. He, the way he writes, the connections that he makes, the wordplay that is in, in, in order here is, is wonderful to see specifically in the Greek. And let me just draw that out for you just a little bit further here. In verse 14, Paul uses the noun skopon, which we defined as that mark or that goal that the runner fixes his or her eye upon, okay? But then in verse 17 here, he uses that same word, skopon, but this time in a verb form to mean observe, right? So in one sense, he's, he's telling them to fix their gaze on the finish line, to set their eyes on the mark or the goal. And now here he's telling them to not only do that, but <clears throat> rather to also to pay careful attention to the pattern of others, to the way they walk. Look intently on the pattern of those who have their eyes fixed on that goal. <clears throat> but who are these people? Who are those who he refers to as us? I would say this, I would, I would reach back to verse 15, where he writes, as many as are perfect, or as we heard last time, as many as are mature, it's the mature, spiritually mature who should be observed, who should be imitated, who should be observed and then have their lives applied to ours, even as we desire to, to follow after them. And we know what Paul means by walking, right? What does it mean to walk? This is a metaphor for how one lives life, how one lives the Christian life, the conduct of one's life, his or her habit of living. Really, a person's behavior, right, demonstrates how they live. He uses this this word walking in other places as he's writing to the churches we see this early on in 1 Thessalonians 4 and verse 1. Finally, then, brethren, we request and exhort you in the Lord Jesus that 
as you received from us instruction as to how you ought to walk and please God, just as you actually do walk, that you excel still more. And so there's an exhortation being given that they would walk in a manner pleasing to God, that they would be walking in faithful obedience to the apostles' teaching. But then again, we see the apostle John write in 1 John 2, 6, how this walk is to be done in Christ's likeness, patterned after him. John writes, the one who says he abides in him ought himself to walk in the same manner as he, Christ, walked. Right? And so there again, we can, while we seek to observe the patterns of others, certainly, Paul, those others who were being faithful in Philippi, at the same time, we know that the basis of that, of that walk is found in the person and work of Christ. But what is the manner of walking, the manner that we are to walk? Well, the manner is described here in verse 17 as according to the pattern you have in us. Tupon, pattern, refers to a mark made as the result of a hammer blow or pressure being applied. It's like if you think of minting a coin, right? There's a hammer blow that occurs and an exact impression, an exact image is made out of that process. And so really what he is describing here is a pattern that is something to be replicated and replicated perfectly, an exact impression, an exact image. And he describes this again in other letters that he has written in First Thessalonians again, this time in chapter 1 and 6 and 7, he writes, you also became imitators of us and of the Lord, having received the word in much tribulation with joy, with the joy of the Holy Spirit, so that you became an example, right? There's that, so that you became a pattern to all the believers in Macedonia and Achaia. And again, in Titus, Titus 2, 7 and 8, Paul writes, in all things, show yourself to be an example, to be a a pattern replicated exactly of good deeds with purity in doctrine, dignified, sound in speech, which is beyond reproach, so that the opponent will be put to shame, having nothing bad to say about us. And again, he, he uses this, this Greek term to describe shepherds and how they are to prove to be examples to the flock. This being in 1 Peter 5, the apostle Peter describing shepherds and how they are themselves to prove to be examples, proving themselves to be examples of, to the flock. And so we could take a few things at least away from this. First of all, let's just understand that what Paul writes here implies that people actually have the ability, right? Believers have the ability of a Christian walk that would make a unique impression on others. Not only a unique impression, but a distinct, an exact impression on others. Why? Well, we can just simply attribute this to the power of God at work in the life of the believer. You know, I think of some of the examples that Paul gives us from Philippi. 
I think of Timothy's example. He was no stranger to Philippi, certainly an example of faithful service even to Paul in his ministry, a co-laborer. And so there's an example, a pattern to be followed that's seen in Timothy, even as he is together with with Paul. Epaphroditus, again, a wonderful example, a wonderful pattern to be followed that certainly is seen in not only Paul, but also in this other servant, Lydia, as she, if we think back how she was kind and provided for Paul early on in his ministry in Philippi. Then there's the jailer who took time to wash Paul's wounds, Paul and Silas's wounds after they were sprung from prison. And so you see, even in the earliest even, even in the earliest moments of a, of a person's life in Christ with the jailer, right? We see that there's a pattern to be followed where he immediately jumps into service, faithful service to others, including Paul and Silas. Now, the Philippians, they didn't have the closed canon as we have it, right? So they didn't have the, the totality of the word of God. And so no doubt, this example that Paul is exhorting for them to imitate, for them to observe carefully, becomes all the more important as it is indicative of faithfulness, a faithful life in pursuing Christ. You've likely heard this slogan, preach the gospel and if necessary, use words, which is nonsense, really. You can't, you can't do that. But that's, you know, no doubt I, what I want to say here is that it's still vitally important that we are presenting ourselves as a pattern to be followed, right? But nobody is saved just simply by looking at us, right? You would have to do quite the charade to proclaim the gospel to somebody without words, right? Understand this, we're always making an impression, always. And I would say that the life of the Christians much more under the microscope than the life of the unbeliever, right? Whether in action or reaction, whether through our words, whether they be wise or careless, we make an impression. But we should note one final thing here about this word pattern, okay? And this is vitally important as well. It's given to us in the singular here. This is not patterns, but it's pattern, right? There's one pattern, one exact replication that Paul intends here. And so as Christians, we need to then guard ourselves against becoming clever and adding gimmicks where we're only to be mimicking, right? We see this throughout the evangelical world. It's actually quite sad when people add gimmicks to the gospel when people add gimmicks to what really should just simply be mimicking faithful life patterned after not only Paul, but after his and our Lord Jesus Christ. And certainly we're not to stray outside of this pattern, but we see that some do. And this is really where we see this distinction between two people, two types of people. Now, I draw your attention to Romans 16, 17, to what Paul writes here, okay, where he gives this imperative to observe, okay? But this time, he wants 
the brethren to observe a different group of people. Now I urge you, he writes, brethren, keep your eye, literally observe those who cause dissensions and hindrances contrary to the teaching which you learned and turn away from them. And that's really what verses 18 and 19 serve in this text, right? Serves as a warning where Paul is describing those who do not walk according to the pattern that you have in us. He describes them beginning in verse 18, for many walk of whom I told you often and now tell you even weeping But they are enemies of the cross of Christ, whose end is destruction, whose God is their appetite, and whose glory is in their shame, who set their minds on earthly things. Four descriptors of those whom he refers to as the enemies of the cross. And we know from other parts of Paul's letter that he is keenly aware of the threats facing the church. There is no doubt threats of persecution, And he even says that they will suffer for Christ's sake and that being a gracious gift given to believers. But he also points out in chapter one, there's pride and ambition that that threatens the church. There are false teachers being um, that, that are coming up against the Philippians as well. Three times we've already heard him say, beware. But who are these people specifically? Let's try to to put our thumb on them a little further. And for that, we need to inspect them. And we need to inspect them because lifestyle really manifests the authenticity of one's profession. So this is important that we consider how they are described here. Now we know from verses two through six in chapter three that Paul warned of those promoting works-based righteousness. He was referring there to, I believe, the Judaizers who were trying to add the law, works of the law, to grace. And he used his own legalistic example in life to altogether reject placing any confidence in the flesh, right? But here I would say in verses 18 and 19, he seems to be targeting a different error that is coming up against the church. And from Paul's description here, we can recognize that there's a sense of lawlessness that he is describing here. So it's not legalism, it's not a strict adherence to the law, um, but rather that there is a disregard and just really um, cheapening grace is, is the effect. These are referred to as enemies of the cross. That's how he refers to them. These are people who are actively and hating and hostile toward Christ's finished work. Either one glories in the cross or one rejects the cross altogether. Two types of people. And we know that that cross is really, as I said last week, it's the determiner of destinies, right? Every person in human history will um, be confronted by the cross, And some will receive grace through the cross unto salvation, while others will remain enemies, be passed over, rejecting the cross to their ultimate destruction. He goes on to describe these enemies in four ways, as I've said. 
Four things can be said of them. First of all, they are those whose end is destruction. Their goal is towards which, the the goal towards which they move is really ultimate ruin. And there's a contrast there, right? As Paul is describing how he strives toward the goal, these are those who are striving toward a different end. Destruction is really the antithesis of salvation here. And it's because their doctrine is wrong. They've rejected the person and work of Christ. Their destiny then is one of perdition. Their end couldn't be more opposite than Paul's, than that end goal toward which Paul exhorted believers to strive. But then secondly, we see that there are, there are those whose God is their appetite. Literally, their God is their belly. Their reverence, their respect is directed toward those things in this world that are not transcendent. Really, they are fixated on much lesser deities, not even deities, really. Paul could be describing a similar such characters again in Romans 16 and verse 18 when he writes, for such men are slaves, not of our Lord Jesus Christ, but their own belly. And by good works and fair speeches deceive the hearts of the simple. And so there is a an aspect there where in their lives they seem to appear as something, but really their appetite is for something altogether different. There's a licentiousness that is being described here. There's no legal or moral restraint found in these people as they only indulge their bodily appetites. And then thirdly, we see that they are those whose glory is in their shame. They are prideful. They esteem themselves. They boast about the very things that should really and do bring disgrace upon them. Where Christ called his disciples to deny themselves, these bask in self-indulgence. And Paul was one of these, no doubt. He formerly prided himself in who he was and what he accomplished, only to later realize that it was altogether loss altogether rubbish, really his works of righteousness were really self-righteousness and amounted to filthy rags in the sight of God. And so those are those who glory in their shame. And then finally, fourthly, there are those who Paul describes as setting their minds on earthly things. They're consumed with the temporal things, with the things that are perishing, Really a stark contrast to what Paul's eyes were fixed on, don't you think? Right As he pressed on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus, not these enemies of the cross, they seek to mislead. Romans 8 and verses 5 through 8 really show this distinction well. Paul writes, for those who are according to the flesh set their mind on the things of the flesh. And so really there he's identifying these very same, um, the same type of people as he does here in verses 18 and 19. He goes on to write, but those who are according to the spirit, the things of the spirit for the mind set on the flesh is death, but the mind set on the spirit is life and peace because the mind set on the flesh is hostile toward God 
for it does not subject itself to the law of God, for it is not even able to do so. And those who are in the flesh cannot please God. He gives a a command to the Colossians in chapter three and verse two that really speaks towards this as well. Set your mind on the things above, not on the things that are on the earth. But these ones here, these enemies of the cross are those who set their minds on earthly things. Couldn't be more opposite. And so what we've seen here so far is Paul's exhortation to imitate him together with Paul's exhortation to be carefully inspecting the pattern in which the spiritually mature around them walk, even as he himself has demonstrated that. And he also displays how he weeps over those who walk otherwise. These are people that he knows. These are people whose names he is familiar with that have been led away, whose God is now their, their belly, who are now walking after the pattern of the world and not the pattern of faithfulness to Christ. How are you doing in your observation of others? Now, we've got many examples here that we could certainly pattern ourselves after, right? There are those among us, certainly, that are walking in faithfulness. And you look to them and you recognize that in their lives, right? You see something in the life of those others, even here at Grace Life, that you seek to emulate, to follow, to imitate, right? You want to actually be a carbon copy, in a sense, of the way they're living out their faith. And then maybe it might be an opportunity to consider, are you one of those people that can be emulated? Are you, should other people be emulating the things that they would see in your life? Whether that be in your words, in your actions, how you respond to situations and so forth. But no doubt we are all called to to be imitators. We are all called to carefully observe the lives of others and to be applying that faithfulness that we see in others to our, ourselves. And so I exhort you, dear friends, find somebody that you can imitate. I'm so grateful for the time that I was able to spend at Grace Community Church in California in seminary as I was surrounded by pastors, faithful pastors who lived their lives out in front of me day after day after day. And I saw a lot that I desired to, to emulate. And certainly they, there was a unity in the pattern that I saw there as they all strove to imitate Christ. Well, let's consider this third ex- exhortation. We'll do so more briefly. That third exhortation is to know your identity. Found in verses 20 and 21. Let me read that. For our citizenship is in heaven, from which also we eagerly wait for a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform the body of our humble state into conformity with the body of his glory by the exertion of the power that he has even to subject all things to himself. 
But we need to rightly understand exactly what Paul is driving at here. You see, we could look at verses 20 and 21 and just say that it presents a simple contrast to verses 18 and 19, to those that are not walking in faithfulness. And while it's true, there is a contrast between those two sets of verses, what Paul really is wanting us to understand is that there's a relationship of verses 20 and 21 that goes back to verse 17. You see, the reason we imitate Paul's example, even as he himself imitated Christ, the reason we observe the faithful pattern of other believers and follow suit is because our citizenship is in heaven. It's the singular compelling reason for obeying. Now, this term citizenship, polituma, is how it's pronounced in the Greek. It refers specifically to the commonwealth or state in which one holds citizenship. And as, as one writer writes about this word, he says, it recognizes the active constitution of a state regulating its citizens under a government's sovereign power. Well, we know who our sovereign power is as heavenly citizens, right? Our sovereign power is Christ. We are under his rule, under his reign. We are citizens under his active constitution, so to speak. But Paul modifies this word citizenship in order to classify for us the sphere in which this occurs. This citizenship exists in heaven where Christ is. This is our current reality. We see in scripture often how we are referred to then as aliens and strangers, foreigners, pilgrims, sojourners. We're really just folks that are passing on through this This world, right? This world is not our home. We are not citizens of this world, first and foremost. Our home is in heaven. And here on earth, we are a colony then of heavenly citizens. You know, the apostle Peter writes in 1 Peter 1.1, in his direct address, whom he's addressing his letter to, he writes this, he says, to those who reside as aliens, those chosen ones are referred to as aliens by Peter. Again, in chapter two and verse 11 of first Peter, beloved, I urge you as aliens and strangers to abstain from fleshly lust, which wage war against the soul. And so we are not to be obviously patterned after what this world esteems but rather we are to be set apart. We are set apart as aliens and strangers to a different citizenship, one one with obviously a much higher calling. And as such, we need to then also understand how does Paul bid us to wait? How does Paul bid us wait as we continue to press on toward that goal. Well, we see this right at right after his mention of our citizenship is in heaven, from which also we eagerly wait for a savior. 
the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform the body of our humble state into conformity with the body of his glory by the exertion of the power that he has even to subject all things to himself. This is what we wait for. And we await for eagerly the second coming of Christ. We await his second advent. In 1 Corinthians chapter 1, we see Paul's prayer for the Corinthian church. And one of his intercessions is that they would be awaiting eagerly the revelation of our Lord Jesus Christ, even as he himself eagerly awaits the parousia. And like the writer of Hebrews in chapter 9, verse 28, we see the writer write, Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time for salvation without reference to sin to those who eagerly await him. And so we too are to be eagerly awaiting that final salvation really as is described by the writer of Hebrews. Paul is awaiting the second coming of Christ as Savior. He's awaiting the the Lord Jesus Christ in anticipation of these culminating events in redemptive history. And he's doing so as a loyal subject awaiting the arrival of the Lord of the commonwealth, the commonwealth to which he belongs. And he's waiting not only for the arrival of Christ, but more specifically, he's anticipating what could be referred to as the great consummation that will occur at Christ's second coming. Now, Let me just point you back again to something that I've said in the introduction. We've heard of Paul's conversion. We've heard of Paul's justification. We've heard of Paul describing his sanctification leading to Christ's likeness. He's already talked about how he anticipates future glorification. But here he is anticipating that future consummation of our salvation. This being when Our bodies are resurrected and then reunited with our souls. William Hendrickson says, the soul and the body, the entire person together with all the saints will glorify God in Christ in the new heaven and earth forever and ever. And this is that moment that will lead ultimately up to the eternal state, which will come. Paul describes this, you know, here in verse 19, when he says Christ will transform the body of our humble state into conformity with the body of his glory by the exertion of the power that he has even to subject all things to himself. And so we notice here that Paul is anticipating an event, a day that is yet to come when his physical body will be reunited with his soul, even as he remains on earth very much alive even before his, his death and his own burial. And he anticipates a time when the fallenness and when the weakness, when the corruptibility, when the mortality of the physical body will be done away with altogether. There will be no more when Christ returns. He will come with 
power sufficient to subdue everything, including the ability to transform our bodies to be like his. This is what lies in store for each and everyone who has trusted in the saving work of our Lord Jesus Christ. You know, there's so much more that could be said about verses 20 and 21 that I I think I've decided that the next time I preach out of Philippians, I'm going to return to chapter 3 here because I really want to spend some time just basking in what Paul is describing here so that we can all the more eagerly anticipate that day, that very day. We do know that he describes it in other places as well. 1 Corinthians 15 being a primary text for this this time when the the body will be raised again in, in these verses. And I won't read the verses, but let me just describe what he describes. This is going to be the time when the perishable body is raised imperishable. When the body that was formerly sown in dishonor will be raised in glory. When what was sown in weakness will be raised in power. When what was sown a natural body will be raised a spiritual body. We fail to even fathom exactly what this all entails. And so the reason why so many people speculate, how will this happen? You know, I know on the men's signal chat, even in recent weeks, there was talk about how will one's body come back together. And I kind of chuckled. But you know what? There's an answer here. There's an answer. So we don't even have to speculate, you know, all of those silly speculations. Because the answer lies right before us in this text. We see it right at the end of verse 21. By the exertion of the power that he has, even to subject all things to himself. That should suffice. Christ having all things subjected to him, will perfectly raise each and every believer, reuniting that person's body together with that person's soul. And in such a way that will be forever. Now, is this what you're looking ahead to? Is this what you're eagerly anticipating? I would say my my appreciation and my longing for the eternal state when we will be in the new heavens and the new earth experiencing the realities that just as we experience reality now, it'll be just as real, except, you know, infinitely much better. I eagerly anticipate that. So we can be thankful. We can be thankful for these three exhortations that Paul gives us here. First, to be imitators Secondly, to be carefully inspecting. And then third, that we would be, that we would know our identity, right? Know your identity. You are a heavenly citizen. And that really should dictate how you walk on this earth. This is the pattern of heavenly citizens so that we press on together toward that finish line. Let's pray. Well, Father, thank you for this afternoon. Thank you for this opportunity to spend time dwelling upon the examples that you have set before us in the person of Paul, the apostle, 
and how he lived his life and how we are to imitate his life. And certainly how we see the life of our Lord Jesus Christ in his earthly ministry and desire to imitate him just as Paul imitated him. Father, we desire also to look to the patterns of others around us, that one single pattern really that we are to emulate where we see a person faithfully walking in obedience to Christ and just simply desire to take steps in those very same footsteps. And Father, that we would be continually reminding ourselves of what lies ahead and eagerly anticipating that day, dwelling upon it, meditating upon it. And God, we can hardly wait to step into the presence of Christ. But in the meantime, we ask that you would enable us to live life faithfully here. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.